Welcome to Bibliophiles, a production of the Center for Lit Podcast Network. Here on the show, we attempt to find universal ideas and stories all around us, whether old or new, in every medium and in any genre. We hope to participate in a great conversation alongside our favorite authors and artists across the ages about the stuff of life, man's frailty and glory, his muck and his marvel, his faith and his doubt. In this season, the Center for Lit crew goes to the movies. We're looking at what happens when our favorite books are adapted for the big screen, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Over the course of 10 episodes, we'll be discussing the similarities and differences between the two mediums and what distinguishes a successful adaptation from a real stinker. So grab some popcorn and enjoy the show. Well, hey guys, welcome back to Bibliophiles. It's good to see your faces again after a little bit of a break. I hope you're all feeling refreshed. I'm feeling refreshed. I'm feeling refreshed. He's feeling refreshed. Megan. Refreshed, my friend. Emily. <laughs> Short. <laughs> Missy. Quite refreshed, thank you. Ah, oh, perfect. <laughs> I'm so glad. You guys, I couldn't be more excited for this new season of Bibliophiles. This is a pet topic of mine. We're going to talk about movies for a whole season. Movies? Movies aren't books. Hey now, hey now. Save your, <laughs> say, so here's the idea. We, we love movies at Center for Lit because we love stories at Center for Lit. And well, let's let's put it this way. How many times have you encountered the question in your life as a lover of literature, talking to people who love books? How many times have you, have you encountered the question, is it wrong to watch the movie before I've read the book? Right. <laughs> or the way that people get so angry about film adaptations. I mean, I'm not I don't engage on Facebook. I just kind of lurk there. Right. But the number of times that people just poo poo the movie of a book because it wasn't exactly whatever or what have you. Mm-hmm. I would engage if I was braver, but I am not. You, <laughs> so what you're so saying is you're going to engage here and now. Right. We go, yeah. we go off into our office where no one can get to us and we exactly. engage from the private of our home. <laughs> we lob grenades out into the social media world. <laughs> well, if you are among you listeners, if you are among the people who believe it is wrong to view a movie that has a book associated with it, you might want to listen elsewhere because we are going to recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> recommend over the course of this season some great film adaptations as well as panning some poor ones. But before we do any of that, I thought I would start with an episode where I hear your guys' thoughts on the intersection between these art forms. I mean, obviously, they're all stories, and so they share some things that we can trot out, I'm sure. But I would love to hear from you guys in your own lives as movie watchers um, how you think these art forms differ. What categories do you consider as you read a film? Well, the problem is you don't read a film. You don't read a film at all. You you watch a film. And the thing that I think gets lost in translation when you take something from a book to a movie is the reader's imagination, because basically what you get is a producer's imagination working on a piece of literature and then depicting it, taking it from story to screen is an act of of analysis, really. They're basically saying, here are the parts of this story that are the most important. Here's my reading of this particular story. And you don't get the story, you get one person's reading of the story, which is useful if you're also reading the story, because you can go in conversation with the producer. But if you haven't watched the read the story before you watch the movie, then you're left only with his idea, which is derivative of an original art form. 
you're right. You're absolutely right. But that also wasn't the question. The question was, what categories do we consider as we watch a movie? Uh, period. Yeah. Not, we'll get into adaptations, and that's going to be the subject of the season. But let's give an introduction to the art form. How is it different? And there, I mean, no answer is too obvious. How is it different from the literary art form? I would offer a counterpoint to all of that and say that in you in response to the idea that you don't read a film, I would actually say if we're taking read kind of loosely to mean interpret, that actually there are far more elements to read of a film. There is an actual text. There's a screenplay. Mm-hmm. Then there's the image. So you're, you're reading it like you would read a work of art or a piece of theater, right? It's a visual. It's yeah. oral. You're listening to it and there's music involved. So all of those things combined, there's several different tracks of reading that you have to run at the same time. Okay, so does that mean you have to be an expert on all of those individual art forms that come together to make a movie? In order to do what? In order to, heavy air quotes, read the movie? I would say the same thing about to that question about movies that I would say if you asked it to me about books. The more you know about the things that go into writing a story, the more you know about how a novel is put together, the deeper your pleasure is going to be as your understanding deepens your pleasure and, and enjoyment of the art form will deepen. So if, if Emily's right, and there are actually a half a dozen facets of quote unquote reading that you do when you're watching a movie, then yeah, expertise in any one or more, a multiple of those facets is going to deepen your pleasure and understanding. On the other hand, it's the same as with, as with stories, little kids who don't have expertise in any of the disciplines, uh, you know, related to storytelling still love them. Right. And we go to the movies because we love it. So. Right. And I actually remember when growing up, dad, if someone in our family had seen the movie before and wanted to interpret for everyone else and warn them as to what was coming, the popular line in our family was this movie was created for people who haven't seen it before. Pipe down. (laughs) (laughs) Never, never forget. This was made for people who've never seen it before. (laughs) Right. Be quiet and act like a child and let this piece of art work on you. And we'll analyze later. I think that a healthy combination of the two two views would make you an excellent critic of movies. I like that. So, but you said, you said something just now I want to zoom in on. You said work on you. Do you guys think that a novel and a film have different goals in terms of how they intend to work on their recipient, on their viewer or on their reader? I was thinking about that today, believe it or not. And uh, was thinking about the the recent experiences I've had with, with watching these, these kinds of movies, the kinds that we're going to be discussing this season and thinking that the, the experience of the viewer of a film is fundamentally different than the experience of the reader of a novel or the, the reader of a, of an epic or a play or something. And maybe there's lots of ways that's different, but the one I, that I was sort of toying with today even was that kind of like as Missy said a minute ago, because the film is the is another reader's imagination bringing to life what he's read in a story. Yeah, a story. Yeah, it's one level removed from you, the viewer. So when hmm. you when you watch a movie, you are if it's The Great Gatsby from the F. Scott Fitzgerald novel, you watch a movie version of The Great Gatsby. You are one remove from Fitzgerald, uh, one extra remove from Fitzgerald than you would be if you were reading the novel yourself. You're getting Boz Lerman's uh, imagination. What's it, what does this text call up in his mind? 
uh, as opposed to calling it up in your own mind. And so I think that the, the way that it works on you is different because of that. So do you think that goes backwards into, again, step taking one step back from adap- literary adaptations as a movie category and into film more generally, do you think that applies to a filmmaker sets out to do something different than a novelist? Well, yeah, I, I think so. And I was going there. The, um, I, I think maybe you guys unpack this and tell me if this is even worth talking about, but you put yourself in the role of the protagonist in a novel in a way that, that is harder to do it in the film. And maybe you're not even supposed to do it in film in film. You're watching a protagonist right. who is very clearly somebody else. It's Tom Hanks. It's not the role. It's right. It, it, yeah. It's some, it's you're observing a protagonist do his thing in a novel. You, the whole idea is that the line between you and the protagonist is supposed to be blurry mm-hmm. and you're in his shoes more immediately uh, in a way that you're not. With film, and I wonder if the uh, th- this is arguable, of course, but I wonder if the cathartic element of of literature is more immediate as a result than the cathartic element of film. That is so interesting. Let's go to Megan and then Emily. Megan. Well, that immediately made me think of distinctions uh, between my experiences of protagonists in movies. Um, I thought of a Humphrey Bogart film whose name escapes me at the moment where you begin the story looking through the lens of the camera as if you are the character. And you watch the first half of that movie bouncing around a little bit as if you are running through the movie and the perspective is your own. Was that Vertigo? No, it's a Humphrey Bogart film and it's about, he gets like plastic surgery done on his face and you don't get to see him actually until that's been done. And then his new face, quote unquote, is Humphrey Bogart's. It's a great movie. I would recommend it if I could remember what it was. You know, Why would anyone making a face from scratch choose Humphrey Bogart's face? Anyway, uh, You know, gentle. He's a classic. <laughs> <laughs> he also can't defend himself. All right. But the reason that I, I call that particular movie to mind is that that seems to be, like you were saying, Dad, the director's attempt to break down that wall between the audience and the protagonist and offer them a book version of an experience in his world that he created. And the same thing, I see it done in Daphne du Maurier's Rebecca as well. That main character doesn't have a name. And so her identity is kind of non-person. And she is hmm. not unique from the reader. You become the protagonist experiencing this strange landscape in her world. So I see that happening in both a book and a movie. And I think maybe that's just another facet of either art form rather of than a distinction between the two. Interesting. Emily, what do you think about that? I agree with Megan. I think that it's done that you do do that in movies more than you think. And But also what it called to mind for me is an anecdote I heard about Stephanie Myers, who wrote the Twilight series, and the fact that she intentionally hollowed out the protagonist, Bella, so that young teenage girls could insert themselves into that role and see themselves. And that that is actually one of the things that parents were concerned about, because it, it gets young girls carried away with these wild emotions that aren't necessarily healthy. Mm. And so I don't know how much that actually factors. Yes, we're to sympathize with a protagonist, but their differences are to ourselves are just as important as their similarities, I think. And I think you experience the same thing in so, film, like so watching you, someone else. You don't necessarily see that extra distance that that dad was talking about well yeah in some senses you should see yourself 
in a protagonist, but in other ways you really shouldn't see yourself. You should see an other in a protagonist and film just makes that barrier of otherness more clear. I think I would go that far at least. And I would say that the, the, because there is a visual image because protagonist is being played by a recognizable person that isn't you, there is an extra distance that isn't there when you're, when you're, when the whole picture of the thing is something you're creating yourself as you read. I don't know if that, Missy, I might've interrupted you. Go ahead. I was just thinking about the question and I wanted to take another stab at it since I understand what you were asking better. And I kind of wonder if the difference between film and novel, for example, between the screen and the written word is maybe the difference between Edgar Allan Poe's artistic sensibilities and say Matthew Arnold or, or someone like him. Okay. Because Edgar Allan Poe is all about art for art's sake and heightened emotions and, you know, titillating the senses and all of that sort of thing. So it's very sensory approach to art. I think the screen really lends itself to that because of all the elements that Emily mentioned, even the music, right. That appeals to the emotions and uh, they're trying to draw all of your senses into this thing that you're watching through sumptuous photography and lavish sound and beautiful people and sparkling dialogue in a novel. It seems like it's appealing to your heart through your mind, right? It's using the imaginative faculty, to, to, to take emotion. you on an emotional journey. Certainly you yeah. arrive, we hope your emotions get involved, but everything is done through imagery and you have to imagine all of it. And obviously it goes without saying that the, the, the thing they lean on the hardest is language. And it is one of the things that I think doesn't translate onto the screen unless in sheer dialogue, right? All of the stuff, all of the, the wonderful literary um, language and style and all that sort of thing. In a movie, you have to somehow get there via the music. Like, for example, take um, To Kill a Mockingbird, which I think is linguistically lovely. And I, I think it's, though they did a fabulous, and we'll talk about this later, though we, they did a fabulous screen adaptation of it, I still think that it didn't hold a candle to the book. Right. It's, I think it's the best screen adaptation maybe ever done, but it didn't hold a candle to, to Harper Lee's efforts. Well, if I could get in and paraphrase and feel free to, to correct me if I, if I misrepresent you here, but it sounds like what you're saying is that the two different art forms aim for the same thing from different, from different ends of this continuum. So the first, so on the one end, you have an art form that specifically says, I am language. So you have to engage your brain to encounter the emotional things that I want to affect your heart. And that's the novel. On the other hand, you have a film that says, I'm going to reach you through your heart, through your senses, and I'm going to cause you to think about what ex- the experience that you just had. And, and maybe, the, maybe the goal is the same down in the middle, but they're working on different parts of you first in that attempt. Is that a fair characterization of what was going through your head? What I was trying to, I was trying to suggest that there is more danger, I think, of someone watching a movie and never thinking about it than there is somebody reading a book and never, never engaging their brain with it. Hmm, I've watched so many people watch a movie with a slack jaw and then walk away and not remember that they ever saw it. It's harder to do, not impossible, but harder to do if you're actually reading well. 
right? And you could argue, I'm sure that if you're watching well, then that, that wouldn't happen either. But right. there's something about the, the art form, the film form is that it just, it appeals to, to your senses and you can just have a sensory experience and never think about what, what you're supposed to be thinking about in the film. See, I don't know. I don't know. And, and I'm, I won't say absolutely not because I think definitely I've seen, I've seen, well, I've had viewing experiences like that. I've been interested in having them occasionally. Even <laughs> I've done it on purpose. Yeah, Let's go hit the couch and binge some Netflix. I don't want to think right now. That's a that's a valid way of using of using film. But but I also think though that we're talking about degrees of artistry. I would argue that a great film does what it does to you because of of the effectiveness of the art. In the same way that a great novel does what it does to you because of the effectiveness of the art. And yes, there is a grammar that you have to you have to acquire in order to really understand it, but it exists just like in literature. And I think they I think they can ultimately both have profound impacts on you. Oh, absolutely. Well, I wouldn't argue that. No, I wouldn't argue that at all. Yeah. I mean, visual visual perform performed story is uh you know is a human tradition that is every bit as old as written sto- stories written down and is valid I, right, I, of course we're not you didn't ask is is one form valid and the other one not you're asking how do they differ right right yeah yeah for sure so let's let's go into adaptations more specifically right because that's where the conversation's going to center and a quick review maybe i think it's we're we're going to have fun noting the other elements that film brings to the table and one thing i noticed myself that i would love to talk about a little bit is the fact that it's such a partnership that it requires so many minds to bring a film to life and emily listed a bunch of them right you've got the person writing the soundtrack, the people involved in recording the soundtrack, which is itself an act of interpretation of the melody that this other guy wrote down. Then you've got the screenwriter who's in charge of of writing the story and writing the book, as it were, for the film. Then you've got the guy that comes in and says, the dialogue's not working here. Let's let's punch this up a little, scene to scene. So there's, I mean, oftentimes rooms and rooms fulls of writers working on the script. Then you've got actors interpreting the script themselves and their own emotions with the aid of a director whose vision it is that's that's being brought to the screen, hopefully. But the director's usually not the guy behind the camera. Sometimes he is, but there's almost always a cinematographer involved or a director of photography who's in charge of taking what he hears from the director and what he's read in the script and what he sees from the actors and putting the camera in the right spot to say nothing of lighting and costumes. And it's this impossibly large collaborative work of art. Don't forget the key grip. Yeah, that's right. Don't that forget the key grip and the do gaffer. Everything that your imagination does all by its onesies. <laughs> right, which which on the one hand is true. I'm not arguing with you that your imagination can do all of those things, but it is since the beginning of time an incredible experience as a human being to watch someone else's brain do it and to watch a hundred someone else's brains do it all in concert. This is why we listen to Handel's Messiah instead of humming it to ourselves in our shower. Right. There's something about collaborative human art, something about collaborative human art that's that is innately powerful. Absolutely. So what we want to talk about in this season, though, is how do these two things intersect? Because everybody's had the experience of watching a film adaptation of a book that they loved and saying that is not how it went down (laughs) or that's not what that guy looks like or that's not in the book. You rewrote that line. And it's such a common experience for book nerds that I wanted to talk about how and why that happens. So let's let's jump into the categories a little bit. What do you guys think a director? Let's let's just say the director as sort of the the motive artistic force behind a film. What does a director need to consider 
when they go to adapting a novel. And if you want, put yourself in the, in the director's chair, in your own head. What do you do first when you ha- decide to go adapt a novel? Well, that's a uh, who even knows. Having directed <laughs> zero movies, yeah. <laughs> I have no idea. But I'll tell you what, the ones that I like the best are the ones where it appears that the director began with the universal theme, as we would call it in one of our lit classes, right? The one where the director began with the main idea and worked backward from there hmm. in from his understanding of what the author was trying to get at and the, the, the swing that the author was trying to make. The director says, okay, I understand the author. That's the swing that this story makes. Now I'm going to work towards that, towards swinging that same swing. Uh, I think that's the that's the the kernel of the idea he ought to be working with, and it seems like he is. And the ones that I like, the adaptations that are moving to me, right? The ones that are most frustrating are indicative of the fact that the director did not reread the book before trying to make a movie of it. Gave no attempt <laughs> to really understand what the book had said, but said, "Hey, cool world, let me write my own story." About okay, it. yeah, like cool world, like like right. what we might say is he 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 sold out for the setting. Right. Right. The setting exactly. of, the, of the book was really cool, and the director made a movie in that setting, and that's yeah. the only place they cross. Or he only liked a, a particular character. Or there was a character right. that was just really, really great. Right. But like a fan fiction film, almost, rather than an adaptation of the story that already existed. Or what about a, a book that isn't that great? Or like Pulp Fiction? Like, what about James right. Bond? What about Ian Fleming? I'm sure the books are fine. Like, I've heard that they're kind of good, but like, would you, like, I would give you Daniel Craig's bond as probably a better work of art. It, I mean, it, you might be right. I, I mean, guess, I, don't, I, I speak from not very much experience with, with bonds. Sure. But no, you're right. I think we, we've already orbited two of the main categories, at least as I could, as I could gin them up. We've got poaching on the one hand. I think we'll call it poaching, I love which that. is noting a setting or noting a character or maybe a particular situation, or maybe it's even the plot, but we want to chuck everything else. We don't like where it was set. We don't like the names of anybody. We just like the events. We're going to poach it and make our own thing. Then we've got bad books made into great movies, which I think is a category. I mean, there's a handful of them. Bond is a great example. I think Bond is a really good example because, uh, you know, Ian Fleming is, it's Pulp Fiction for sure. And the movies last way better. They have way longer lives and are way more significant contributions to Western culture than the novels were. It's a better genre for it. Mm-hmm. So then all of that is said in contrast to a straight across adaptation, where, as dad said a second ago, the author aims to or the director aims to sidle up next to the author and say, I see your point. Let's do it just like you did it. It looks like cast people. Yeah. Or yeah. here's mm-hmm. your point. I'm placing myself intentionally in conversation with you. I, I, I acknowledge your point. I honor what this book was doing. And I have something to say of my own. Right. But I'm going to use you as a means to that Shakespeare is on the brain. Exactly. He does this too, right? Right. He took Hamlet, which was a play that had been put on before. And he was like, good idea. Romeo and Juliet. Megan and I just taught that not that long ago. Here's this. It's a interesting little poem that you got there. I see what you're doing. (laughs) I would like to add to this conversation and I'm going to take your story to do it. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Which I think is valid in its own sense. Really fun. Thinking more along the lines of Shakespeare and what he did, he would troll through history and literature and poetry and pick storylines and combine them together. So I sometimes wonder if he's really intentionally in conversation 
with all of these or if they were just like source texts that he went to to get ideas. His history plays are absolutely an intentional conversation with previous history texts. Okay, his histories. But what about what are all of his tragedies that way? Well, I think Romeo and Juliet, I mean, given that it's been referenced already, absolutely is in conversation with all of the versions before. I mean, all the way back to Ovid, Pyramus, and Thisbe. It's the same plot line, and Shakespeare is absolutely in conversation with it and emphasizing crucial flaws of the main character and making them the zeitgeist of the play. And it's fascinating to compare the two side by side. I definitely have had the same thought, though, Mom, about Shakespeare, because... What comes to mind when I think of Shakespeare is this guy probably wrote every story he ever heard. And he was just better than the first guy. (laughs) So so he gets credit for it. It was the best expression of a story that was already in the water and he gets credit for it. And there's nothing we can do as historians about that because his is the one that came down to us. Right. I'm sure that happens. I'm sure that that happens. So that's but that's the last category, I would say. We've got poaching. We've got straight across. Um, we're going to set it in the same time period. We're going to use the same names for the characters. The plot's going to go exactly the way that it did in the book. We're going to do our best to make this as faithful as possible. We've got the best and the worst, maybe. Then we've got ones that are in conversation where the, we can tell the reading was good on the part of the director, but he's trying to participate in a larger conversation using the work as it's as the substance of that conversation. And then we've got, finally, what I would say is happening in Shakespeare, which is or what often happens when we adapt Shakespeare for the screen, which is mm. historical yeah. resettings where we're not necessarily changing the plot or the names of the characters. We're changing the setting as a means to applying his idea to a new era or to our own era. Maybe are we missing anything? Do you think those are the kind of the major categories of adaptation? I don't know, but it must be said that visual performing art is a great medium for that last thing. And some of the very best, Literary movies are ones that do that, that that intentionally transpose a classic story to another time and place or another setting of some kind. But always in the service, I think, of having a conversation about themes, right? About the underlying big ideas. I don't know if you can say always. You can't say, what do you mean? There are some that don't do it well? Well, or some that don't even try. They, But then we, we'd call those poaching. We're going to call that poaching. We call it poaching. That's a different category. It's great. We've got a category for everything. (laughs) I think that the history of West Side Story is actually really interesting, given all the categories you just listed. I was going to suggest that we talk about that for a second. Romeo and Juliet, which Megan already showed us, has a history of its own. And then it's been adapted as a stage play and musical for a different time and then it became a movie and then it became another movie and so now there's like a long history or conversation surrounding this storyline this tragic love and now it just goes back and back and it's like all of them are in conversation with each other it's like watching i think there's a way that film adaptation is a little bit like watching the great conversation play out before your eyes or like freezing it at a moment in in time Mm, yeah yeah. right There's a conversation about Romeo and Juliet that's been happening since pre-Shakespeare. Shakespeare was a snapshot of that conversation. People performing it through the ages are snapshots of that conversation. And now we've got West Side Story movies as snapshots of the conversation. And they all center around, I'll just keep going back to it. They all center around that idea of young, impetuous, star-crossed love. And there's the universal. Western civilization is mulling over the idea of young, impetuous 
star-crossed love in the Romeo and Juliet story. I'd love it. So we would have to say then, we all come down, and this is a shock to no one, (laughs) we all come down on still thematic reading, still the most important thing going on, whether we're addressing a film or a novel. Although I think West Side Story is actually different in that it it comes down on a different emphasis than Shakespeare. Shakespeare is concerned with the some of the moral questions of the parents and the relationships between the parents and the children and the decisions that the children make. Whereas Leonard Bernstein and, and Stephen Sondheim were maybe more concerned with, I mean, they, they take up those issues too, but the real emphasis is on the plight of New York City. Right, the society. In the 1950s, Social justice right? issues, yeah. Yeah, the, the parents are the Conspicuously cops absent, actually. And the developers. Right. So wouldn't that fall into the category then of in conversation with a previous work? Where the, so, yeah. the, the new story is an iteration of an old one. So you're not just transposing it from play to movie, but one story to another. It's, it's a meta work. So that's a little... Go ahead, Dad. I was just going to say, I'd have to say that that is every uh, participant's prerogative every participant in the great conversation when mm-hmm. it comes time for him to give a reading of the, of the idea in question, the theme in question, the work in question is his prerogative to say, I want to emphasize this or that aspect of it. I want to apply it to this or that situation. But, but that, that becomes powerful and engrossing and compelling and transcends the lines between genres. The more that it's faithful to the original idea. In the case of the Romeo and Juliet, it's young, impetuous, star-crossed love. And isn't that a thing? Don't teenagers just up and do that. We all know it, (laughs) right? And let's have a conversation about all the ramifications, social, political, cultural, racial, whatever. Corporeal. uh, Over the course of centuries. Every contribution to that conversation is potentially really compelling. Okay, good. That, I mean, that gets to the next the, the next question I wanted to ask is that is it okay when we're talking about a resetting historically of a of a classic story, is it necessary in order for it to be a faithful adaptation? Is it necessary that it only sidle up alongside the author and deliver his point, or is it okay that it respond and say yes, but or yes and? Well, that's with the um, fan fiction thing, right? It's it's more derivative when you go the second the second way. Oh, I disagree. I think that my favorite film adaptations are are firmly towing the line between faithfully rendering the the author's work and doing their own thing thing. Looking at it and saying, "But how about this? What about an addition here? What if we took that guy out?" loudly interpreting the author's work. So that, like Dad said at the very beginning of today's podcast, their voice is the one that you're hearing. It's like the director is aware, in my favorite versions at least, of, of books made into movies. You're aware from the very beginning that you're getting the director's reading. And he is he is in conversation loudly with the original author. Those are my favorites, when you can hear the director. That's really interesting. I might agree with you about that. And and since we're not going to do a, an episode zoom in on it, I'm going to bring up the Lord of the Rings, which is, <laughs> which is such a, uh, such a topic of controversy. I mean, real Tolkien nerds are split right down the middle on whether Peter Jackson's legendary Lord of the Rings trilogy, which won just a bucket of, of Oscars, whether it's good or not. And 
the conversation has all sorts of depth. I mean, there are some people who are willing to say, it's terrible. He didn't include Tom Bombadil. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. I've talked to them. I've talked to them. It's terrible. He didn't include Tom Bombadil. Which, which criticism I don't think really holds a lot of water. The reasons he cut Tom Bombadil make a ton of sense to me, and I don't think it hurt the end product of the film really at all. Right. But then there are also people whose, whose criticisms hold a little bit more weight. Like, for example, they rewrote Captain Faramir's character pretty significantly. Mm-hmm. The actions that he takes towards some of our other important characters in the movie are super different from the actions that he takes towards them in the book, and it it sort of wrecks the punch of or, you his storyline. Infamously, line. the fact that Frodo rejects Sam. Right. Yeah. Never Frodo and Sam people. have a falling out halfway up the winding stair. That's that's a little unforgivable, Pete. <laughs> right? So on the other hand, I'm completely willing, while picking all of those nits, I'm completely willing to say this was a faithful and uh, wholehearted adaptation of Tolkien's story. And I think it works. So it's interesting to me that we can say both of those things. You tweaked some stuff, you changed some stuff, and yet I feel really confident that you knew exactly what you were doing and it works. Right, that you changed it on purpose. It's a conversation about whether or not we're going to allow such a thing as adaptation in our world, right? And then how we define a good one versus how we define a bad one. Given that we will allow adaptations, What's a good one and what's a bad one? Maybe you have to say that a film is not a book, that it doesn't replace a book. Yeah. Whether it's narrating the story as faithfully as possible and giving us that reading, or it's coming along and interacting with the ideas in the story by making changes so as to bring up a discussion about the particulars. Mm -hmm. Either way, it's not the book. Yeah. Right. It's some other thing. It's another thing altogether. And maybe we, we get confused when we see the same title. For both. Well, I think kids do in particular. I remember taking a kid to a lot to the library and trying to find this kid um, who shall remain nameless. (laughs) Was it me? It was not you. (laughs) It it was one of your friends trying to help this kid find any book that he would take home and read. His mother was like, please, can you get him to read a book? I was like, yeah, okay, I'll give it a shot. So I take him to town (laughs) and we're staying in the library. How about this one? This is a really neat book. This story is about this, this, and this. And I've seen it. You've seen it. Have you read it? No, I haven't read it. Um, But I've seen it. It's the same. Well, but it's not. It's the same. I don't want it. I mean, it. I really had to go a ways to try to find some book that this kid had not seen already. I was once on a track bus with this guy who refused to wear pants in the wintertime. He literally oh. wore shorts year round. <laughs> I could that never. Not what I thought you were going to say. Like six, yeah. four, he was like six three, six four, just this big dude. And he evidently had enough on him it, just with his own body fat that he wasn't cold. And so that was one of the remarkable things about him. But at one point he said, I said, Hey man, what have you been reading recently? Which is such a homeschooler way to try and start a conversation on a public school <laughs> track bus. And, and he said, no, nah, I don't really read books. And I said, how come? He said, cause it ruins the movies. Oh, Oh buddy. <laughs> first of all put some pants on and second of that all second, put the pants on. that made me feel righteous for years made me feel righteous in my opinions for mm. years and years 
But it's such an interesting question because over on the How to Eat an Elephant podcast, we have been saying for quite a while that we actually think it's worthwhile to watch the BBC adaptation of War and Peace before you go to reading the book. We can't talk about that much yet, though, because that's going to be a whole episode later. But the principle, right? The principle is that it gives you a lifeline through a very unwieldy and long book. True. My mother used to teach uh, Shakespeare a lot, speaking of Shakespeare only. And she used to tell the kids to go get master plots. Um, she told me that the librarians at the schools used to keep master plots behind the desk so that kids couldn't quote unquote cheat. She's like, oh. She went in and said, let my kids access master plots, which is like, you know, Cliff's Notes or Schmoop or whatever for plot line. She'd say, go read the plot line. We're going to be discussing this play in class. And you're going to have a really hard time following the language if you don't already know the storyline. So it's the same basic idea. Right. Right. Here's here's a way to open the door for you into what is a great work of literature. And we'll we'll take care of walking over that threshold later. Yeah. She also added something, (laughs) something snarky, like if I don't ask them anything more than the plot line, then they deserve an A. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. That's great. Sounds like your mother. But the opposite also holds true. Ian, I have not to this day been able to get you to watch the Lily James Rebecca because you refused to watch it until you read the book. That's true. And you haven't read the book. I haven't. Well, <laughs> well that, I think that's that's fair. There because are some that is fair. Spoiler we're, alerts. We're, there know? are camps developing, gentle listeners. You can hear them, I'm sure. But I just want to point out that there are camps <laughs> yeah, developing in the Center for Lit Office. Dad, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say it depends on the, uh, the the work of literature that we're talking about whether a any movie adaptation is a spoiler or not. And they're the ones that are plot heavy and plot driven. Uh, you know, it's going to be easy to spoil those. But I wanted to make another point about adaptations. It, it's tempting for a guy like me to say that a good adaptation is one that is faithful to the details of the original text, the original story. I'm an originalist, right? And it has to have as much of the actual text in it as possible, and all the marks have to be hit. And that is the definition of a good adaptation. Except it isn't, because the world is filled with examples of very, very faithful film renderings of novels that stink as movies. (laughs) (laughs) This book didn't make a good movie. (laughs) Yeah. So if we're going to decide whether adaptations shall be allowed, it's going to be really important for us to define what a good one is. And that's a discussion about movies as much as it's a discussion about books. And so I'm looking forward to this conversation because I, I want to know more about uh, how the movie sausage is made. Yeah, me too. Well, I think, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to read more about it as we go along and, and bring inter- interesting tidbits to the rest of you because I'm likewise fascinated by that very thing. It occurs to me, though, that in this pursuit, we all have, we all have a tool, which is that we are good at reading stories. And we're good at looking at the novel itself and deciding what is the main thing the author uses to make his point. Because I would say that as if I were in the director's chair, to go back to the original question, one of the first things I would do is decide what kind of an author am I dealing with? Is this guy a, a character development? Is this Dickens, right? Is Dickens interested? Dickens is interested in characters primarily. That's the medium he uses. Or am I dealing with Tolkien, whose primary medium is setting? Or am I dealing with Hemingway, whose primary medium is clipped dialogue, right? I mean, what what kind of an, what does he emphasize? I'll try and emphasize that element as well. And whether the details of the plot come out exactly the same or not, I'm going to give the sense and the spirit of the work because I'm going to choose the same element to emphasize. That's what Peter Jackson does well, right? 
He says, here's a vision of the setting of Middle Earth that will replace your imagination, I promise. And anybody that has seen those movies and then read those books, even if you'd read the book before you saw the movie, and we're going to end with that question, but even if you'd read the book before you saw the movie, I promise you, Aomer of Rohan looks like that forever. Because yep. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a good looking warrior, right? I think it's interesting how a good film adaptation can also give you new eyes to see the book with. I was We're not treating it in this series. And so I was thinking about uh, the new Emma. Mm. Uh, with what's her name, Anna Taylor Joy. Yeah, it was great in that it emphasized the grittiness of Austin's work. Right there's there's even a little choice choice nudity that actually like it draws attention to the bodiedness of the characters. Like mm-hmm. we, our temptation with Austin is to idealize the romance, and we miss the fact that she's just talking about the mundane embodiedness of of people and their creatureliness and that adaptation did a really good job of right kind maintaining of re- the humor that austin is famous for actually yeah and it, and it um drops itself into the literary conversation and by um refocusing the way that we talk and think about austin which mm, is interesting i like that i do too well i can tell that i'm going to spend a lot of time listening in this particular podcast <laughs> Why would that be? She says saltily. I don't you believe you. You have as much or more to say than any no, of us. I do not have as nearly as much to say about movies as I do about books and novels. So I, you know, it was really helpful to me when you when you came up with this idea for this season. My first response is, "Why are we talking about movies? This is a, this is a podcast about books." Hilarious. <laughs> and you basically uh, gave me a little explanation of how this this was a valid topic of conversation in bibliophiles. Give me a little redux of that. Remind me, will you? I mean, I don't remember exactly what I said at the time, but what I would say in response to it now is that what we're interested in doing is making people good readers of stories more broadly. And the reason we want to do that is because we think the world is one. We think it was spoken into being by a creator God who is telling our stories to us as we live. And and so there's a part of making stories and listening to them and reading them and and then participating in retelling them to each other that's living in the image of God. And I think that's that's important. And one of the ways that our culture does that right now is an explosion of visual art. We have film and television series, and we have individual movies, which I would liken to the individual movie is like a short story, and the, the television series is more like a novel. We're telling stories on the screen. And so why wouldn't we talk about all the stories we can get our hands on and develop the same set of muscles for, for talking about film that we have about novels? Especially since... Over and over again, some significant percentage of the time, when a movie maker goes to find material for a new story to tell, he looks back into the literary past and grabs one of the great ones. And so there is an inherent crossover between these two media, these two genres, that it behooves all good readers to be aware of. And to 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 treat this visual storytelling medium as a as a literary thing. Mm. Okay, what would you say to people that um, to detractors? Let's call them detractors. That say we don't that, have any of those in the podcast. Do no, we? no, because I watch movies too. I like movies. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> that say that the the movie version of any, if you go to a movie as opposed to the book, then you're being lazy. It's a lazy way to get your story. It doesn't engage your brain. That is a, ref, a reformulation of the final question of the show today. And the way I was going to phrase it is, should one, should one read the book or watch the movie first? And if you, and if you feel morally convicted about this, <laughs> you are free. You are free. This is a safe space. You can say exactly what you think on this topic. But I want to hear from each of you in turn, starting with Missy. With me? Oh, starting with me. Thank you. Okay. Um, I think, I think that it doesn't matter whether you start with the book or you start with the movie as long as you I don't, don't believe skip you. I was going to say. You can't skip the book. You can okay. watch the it movie first if you prefer. It is in my head that says something different than that. I'm, well, I'm willing to hear you out here. Here's my thought. It, you, can watch, you can watch it first if you want to and then go read the book and compare. Or you can read the book, watch the movie, and then go back to the book again. It, here's my thing. Once you've seen the movie, it is really hard, I think, to imagine anything except the characters that that particular director has chosen. So I prefer reading the book first because your own imagination comes up with what this person looks like. And, and then when you watch the movie, you are in dialogue with the director. In the producer. That's a good argument for reading preference. the book first. That's a compelling argument. But I'm not going to make it a rule. Because she knows better. That shows significant <laughs> personal growth on your part. I was going to say, um, I didn't think mom would say it, but I, I was going to say, I don't think it matters because if we publicly advocate rereading, which we do, if we publicly advocate conversation being the point, conversation about ideas back and forth being the point, then our experience with a book and our experience with a movie are going to be two instances where we enter the conversation through different doors. And uh, as long as we understand, in the case of an adaptation, which came first, and we keep that in our heads. I and don't, we don't attribute it to the author of the book necessarily. Right. As long as we're grownups about it and we realize that Boz Lerman's Great Gatsby is as much Boz Lerman as F. Scott Fitzgerald, Fine. So I, where I, where, when I was your father and you were in my house, I would have stood with your mom and said, we're what, reading the book first. Now that we're all grown up, I don't think it matters. Wow. Okay. I'm, <laughs> I wasn't expecting either of those. So color me shocked. But I do, but I do double down on what mom just said about the, um, the book providing a unique opportunity to engage your own imagination first. So then, so that then you, your reading can be in conversation with a director's reading. I, th I love that yeah. idea. Yeah, I think that's powerful. Emily? Well, I mean, I don't disagree. I wouldn't. So just for the sake of not reformulating everything that was said, I guess I would narrow it down a bit and say I really liked what was said earlier about if you're just like just the practical decision of trying to decide between the two. I like the distinction of plot and, and the kind of plot that it is. If it's, a, if it's a murder mystery or if it's some kind of suspenseful plot, then probably you should read the book first because that's going to be a more enjoyable experience and the movie would ruin it. But, but if it's something where it would be helpful to, to watch the movie first or if while you guys were talking, I was thinking, yeah, but just because I've seen Twilight doesn't mean I'm going to read it. Um, or if it's just, you know, that can be a way to gauge whether or not it's even worth reading a book. Well, it does. It, it, you're, what you're basically saying is, do I want to be in conversation with the culture 
or do I want to be in conversation with the author and the director? Because if it's just the culture, if I just want to be culturally literate about a storyline, then, you know, take your pick. If, if it's Buzz Lerman's uh, movie just came out and you just need to be literate enough to have a dinnertime conversation with somebody about that movie, great. But if what you really wanted to do is be in conversation with the author, that's something different. Well, sort of. I would say that for my last example, that that's also having a conversation with the culture. But the last thing I wanted to say actually had to do with mom's question, which I think, Ian, is actually slightly different than the one that you've posed. And that's, it had, um, let's see, it had something to do with whether it's lazy to, to watch the movie. And I would say no matter what you choose, which I don't think ultimately matters that much, whichever one, you have to use your mind while you're doing it. I think there's a lazy way to read a book, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think more people do that than we think. I do it. <laughs> I won't leave myself out of that. So I, I just would encourage us to, to, no matter which adaptation or original we view, to use our minds in doing so. Hmm. Agreed. Agreed. Megan? Well, I don't know if I have anything other to add to the conversation, because I agree with all three of you who've gone before. But as I was thinking about it, I think that if we come in with the assumption that our minds will, minds will be on for the enterprise, whether you're watching the movie or reading the book, then you can actually use your judgment depending on what art form, what, what format the conversation of that art form is going to be. For example, War and Peace is going to be sweeping and historical in nature, as well as a commentary on character and theme. And as a result, you might need a little historical precis to help you get to the meat of the storyline. That being said, I would advise watching the movie first. It is a great abstract of the the history so that you can get to the meat of the novel and kind of see the end from the beginning in some ways. I don't think that's true of every work, but I think it helps to make the decision on an individual basis. And assuming that we're talking to adults who have minds alive and awake and are going to bring those into the process. I think that analyzing the format of your novel or your of the piece of art was helpful in the decision. I, I think that's great because it, it brings to mind the fact that there's context for a book, just like there's context for a movie. And one of the contextual elements of a movie is that, or if it's an adaptation, is the author. And that's one of the things that you have to consider when using your mind to encounter an adaptation. I will say with young children, it would be important to maybe to have them read the story first. And one of the reasons why is I remember watching Anne of Green Gables before I read the stories. And once I had watched the movie to go to the story, it was such a faithful rendering of what what was in the, the novel. Like even the dialogue was the same that I felt like it, it really was like, well, I've already, I've already read this. I feel like that's a loss. Do I feel like it's what? Is that really a loss? Or did you just really well, I will gain never know. by having I will Megan follow as your because aunt? Because there, there's more than one storyline. Like it was a series, right? She, she wrote Anne of Avonlea and Anne of the Island and went, out, they they went out on and on. I haven't read there. Eventually. Yeah, and of South Africa. (laughs) There there were so many different storylines that she developed over time in this series of hers. And I feel I've always felt like I want to read these. I really want to sit down and read these. But every time I start at the beginning and I think I just I I feel like I've seen this already. Yeah, I feel like I saw this already. So I have an example of that that um, that sort of takes the other tack. I totally agree with you about uh, Anne of Green Gables. I've never made it through the 
the novels because of having watched the miniseries and loved it. But I had this, a similar experience with Little Dorrit by Charles Dickens, my first contact with which was that BBC miniseries with Claire Foy, Foy and Matthew M. Wait, last you name didn't, I can't say. Matthew you didn't actually. <laughs> I had never read it before I saw that. Should I not be hard that. to I, say his I last name. Either. It's Fat Ian. <laughs> Matthew McFatian. <laughs> Matthew McFatian. Oh, yes. I love that. It's Matthew McFatian. That is beautiful. That's funny. You're welcome. But anyway, I have to tell you that that, and maybe this is a testimony to the greatness of Dickens' novel. I don't know. But all of the plot spoilers were spoiled for me. The outcome was clear. Fabulous miniseries. I absolutely loved it. I've seen it like four times. But then I turned to the novel and every, uh, the novel was, was not ruined for me at all. Not in the least. The novel went deeper and the novel was novelish instead of movieish, And it was glorious. And I would have to say that my, I had the war and peace experience as you guys are talking about. I got a little pricey of a long involved character laden novel. And so I knew what was coming and didn't wreck a thing. So how do you you explain that? I don't know. Did you see Claire Foy as you were reading? No, you didn't. No, neither. And I had the same experience as dad because it had the little Boz illustrations or whatever. This helps me answer the question myself a little bit, because what I've been chewing on over here is that I really think that this question, my answer to this question is dramatically altered by how good a book we're talking about. Okay. Because if it is, if it's a bona fide classic, if, if it's, if it has survived hundreds of years on its own before receiving a film treatment, no, no director is going to be able to ruin that. If he's a good director, if he's a good director, he can only add to the glory of something already glorious. If he's a bad director, it's not going to hold a candle to the novel and the novel will be better in the end anyway. So I, I don't know that it matters if we're talking about a real classic. I don't know that it matters. Now, kind of plot. I, I agree with that comment. If it's an Agatha Christie adaptation, go read the book. Go right. read it. <laughs> then then you can watch the movie and enjoy yourself. But don't don't get a twist book ruined for you. That would be sad. But I think if we're talking about a classic, I don't know that it matters at all. I think hmm. you can do whichever one, whichever one you want. Now, I will say, if the book you're talking about is A, beloved, and B, not a classic... I don't know that I would recommend watching the movie at all. Yeah, I agree with you. Because <laughs> it's easy, comparatively speaking, to ruin a mediocre book, no matter how much you love it. It's easy for a director to get in there and mess with your head and ruin that for you. <laughs> Eric on. Yeah, I was going to okay. say. <laughs> it's off my there chest. We're done. Yeah, it's we good. had to say it out loud. Moving it's going to be okay. Anyways. <laughs> it was really sad to me. Yeah. Um, also, can I just point out an example of poaching before we don't talk, because we're not going to talk about it later on in this season, but... Um, yeah, we are. I'm going to talk about poaching later in the season. Well, but no, I don't mean poaching as a category. We're definitely talking about that. I mean, we're not going to talk about this example. Oh. oh, okay. Which is the fact that, because here's the thing, even poaching can sometimes result in another classic level work. Controversial. Like a derivative okay. work, you mean? You might What's need to yours? give us an example. No, Leanne. not der- no, no, not derivative. It's its own footprint in the world. Westworld, Star Wars. Oh, um, which Frank Herbert, which ripped off Frank Herbert yep. from start to finish. It is scene for scene, open. Baby. It is an open poaching of Frank Herbert's well, doing. That's just copyright and laws. Massive, right and has a massive cultural impact. It has spawned its own. It's own not just a multi-million dollar franchise of a film, but it's it's an it is a whole it's a whole universe of other works of art 
that have Can come you call out it fan fiction? Thing. I don't know. He wouldn't have admitted it. That's slightly different, though. He didn't call it Dune, you know? That's not quite the same thing as it what counts you as were saying. But that's like. <laughs> it's stealing. Yeah. It's stealing. It's stealing. It's plagiarism yeah. is what it is. Set out to be an adaptation. Like, okay. I was thinking of like Jurassic Park. Which, you know, it's uh, it has the name of the book and yet it, it did its own thing gloriously with Jeff Goldblum, you know? <laughs> yes, I do know. Jeff Goldblum. <laughs> what a man. <laughs> oh, you guys, this is such a great conversation. Well, Here I, we go, I am season. Let's go. really excited to dive in with all of you. Um, thank you, listeners, for joining us. We're so stoked to be bringing you a new season of Bibliophiles. And uh, if you like what you hear, come on back next week and we will dive into some specific examples of our favorites and maybe not so favorite literary adaptations. Until next time, my friends, happy reading. Happy reading. Happy reading. And there you have it. Bibliophiles is officially back for its second season. We hope you enjoyed this inaugural conversation about film and literature. And we hope you'll join us in the weeks ahead as we talk about some of the book adaptations we love and those we love to hate. As always, we want to hear what you think. So please, find us on social media and add your voice to the conversation. See the show notes for this episode to find a link to our Bibliophiles Facebook group and visit our website at www.centerforlit.com to find more ways to join the great conversation. Until next time, happy reading, everyone.